This week's episode, we're talking with Ed Riley from B&B Charcoal. He educates me and he will educate you with choosing the right product for the right food. That has a lot to do with it. And then at the end of this podcast, he drops a bombshell, and I mean a bombshell, on the quantity of charcoal grills we all should own. Welcome to the Butcher Barbecue Podcast, world headquarters, Wellston, Oklahoma. The Butcher Turn Pitmaster, your host, David Bosca. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of the Butcher Barbecue Podcast. This time, we're stretching out just a little different. It has everything to do with barbecue and nothing that I'm known for. I am a pellet head. Everybody knows that. But we have brought on Ed Riley with B&B Charcoal. I want him to educate me, educate you. Let's talk charcoal. Ed, welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, and I appreciate you inviting me on your show. Looking forward to it. And Ed, I will say, I have used your pellets. I pick them up at Academy. There is not a problem with them. I, I do enjoy having the luxury of being able to go local and get them. Well, Academy is a great partner with us. We are, uh, you know, we're an Academy. We're a few other retailers across the country. We're always looking to get get into more retailers as well. But our pellets are, are uh, maybe you you can speak to it if you've used them. But they're made a little bit different, just like our charcoal briquettes or a charcoal lump. We make our products a little bit different, and that makes a lot of difference in the food your uh, your I'll say your customers, but your listeners prepare. In the end of the day, your food is affected by the fuel you use. The better fuel, the better fuel. Let's just start with charcoal. That's what you're known for, right? That's, that's our flagship. B&B originated in 1961 in uh, South Texas. Their, their oak lump charcoal is, is what people look for when they look for a Texas-tasting charcoal because it's a post oak. Uh, that post oak is a, it's not a species, but it's, a, it's, it's how that oak how that species of oak grows in Texas with the arid soil and the winds. So it's only found in kind of the West Texas, Nevada, Arizona, Mexico, those areas down there. Um, they make that charcoal a little bit different as a species specific. We don't mix hardwood. So when you get a bag of our lump charcoal, it's post oak. Or we also make a hickory or a mesquite, and we also have a chabacha wood too. But the idea is that it's a consistent BTUs, so it's the same type of wood, so it's going to burn the same way, and it's the same smoke profile. Smoke, as you know, is a flavor. It's an additive. It lands on your food. The little particulates that effervesce off the charcoal or off the pellets land on your food and change that flavor. Having a predictable source gives you, your chefs, your, your listeners, a predictable taste profile. All right, I got to ask. You said Chewbacca wood. Is that what you said? Yeah, it's a, it's Argentina. The word actually means axe breaker. Uh, probably saying it wrong. I don't have a Spanish accent, but Chewbacca wood is the same things like Fogo or Jealous Devil use. So it's a thick, heavy wood. Uh, it's great for Kamados. Uh, it's great for hot, long burns. Um, but it's big. I mean, they're they're softball sized pieces. Uh, and that's that we source that out of Argentina uh, and, and South America. And that's it, it's it, the way it, it doesn't have the same taste profile as our oak. It is an oak, but it's just it's mo mainly known for its heat and its uh, its longevity. It burns for a long time. So then people will add chunks or pellets or chips to the trabacha to the we call it. That's our Texas extra large lump. Um, they'll add flavors to that because that oak 
has the BTUs, but it doesn't have a lot of signature taste to it, if that makes any sense. But people who use that are using that for um, for steaks, faster cooks. They don't they don't need a lot of smoke for. All right. But yeah, that's the word. Um, it's probably it's Q U E B A C H O, and I think the word means axe breaker in Spanish. All right. So for this podcast, we'll say the axe breaker uh, charcoal. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you gotta be careful saying that it might sound like something else if you say it too fast oh you're absolutely right all right let's start with the basics on educating people on charcoal let's go with what everybody knows briquettes tell us the basis of briquettes and why a briquette so the eternal question always is do i use briquettes or do i use lump i say use both each one has its benefits and each one has its drawbacks so depending on what you're cooking and what you're going to need the briquette is made from a a char okay typically uh the briquette was invented in 1880 90 something in that but it was a fuel source for heating not for cooking uh henry ford your listeners probably know this if not this is good this is a bit of trivia for him henry ford teamed up with thomas edison in the 20s to do something with all the scrap wood he had left over because when he was making his Model T's, or yeah, I guess it was the Model T's in the 20s, they had wooden um, uh, control panels uh, for your dashboard. So he had a, he had all these wooden plugs that where the dials would go in. He had piles of them. Uh, Henry Ford hated wasting anything, so he tied up with Thomas Edison and made briquettes. But that was made out of scrap wood, so it was extra wood that was left over. He just didn't want to throw away, so they made the briquettes. It didn't catch on because at that time, in the 20s, people were transitioning from cooking with coal to cooking with gas and electric, so it ended up not taking off very quickly. He actually started giving away little Ford grills, barbecue grills, with his, you know, like a whatever addition you would buy. He would give you the grill and the first box of briquettes, so you'd have to go back to the Ford dealership. He eventually sold that Ford charcoal-making process to his cousin, Kingsford, and that's where we get Kingsford from. Uh, and that's where the charcoal briquette started. But the reason I'll tell you that story is because it always started out as a way to utilize waste, scrap waste. The, the Kingsford briquette has a lot of extra stuff in there. Um, since it is a manufactured product, people can put things in there. What makes ours different is ours is 100% oak char. We don't add any industrial waste. There's no sawdust. Just a little bit of a cornstarch binder to keep it all together. And we source our oak char exclusively from our oak lump process. So after we produce our oak lump, we take that char, the smaller pieces, and make our briquettes with it. So they're highly compressed. With a with a we, we stamp a B in there, not just for logo branding, but also so there's more surface area on that briquette. So there's more areas to burn. So what you get with a briquette, with our briquette, is consistency because it's made to a certain form. Whereas with the lump, you have different sizes, so there's more fire management. So a briquette, you've got consistency. You lose a little bit of heat. They don't get as hot as a lump piece. So the briquette's surface temperature on a briquette, about 800 degrees, which seems like a lot. But by the time you get the grill temperature on the top, you know, you're gonna, it's going to sacrifice a little bit, 600 750 to 600 on your grill surface, which translates to, you know, a slower cooking time, but more predictable. 
Uh, you don't get a lot of smoke flavors uh, because the briquette's been broken down. Some of those cell membranes and the lanikin that, you know, that form what you would t- typically think of the wood piece have been broken down. So some of that is what produces the smoke flavoring. So briquettes, you, you get consistency with the BTUs and time, but you lose a lot with your particular smoke profile and your higher temperature. Uh, you do get to use more briquettes in the back because the briquettes don't break down. Lump, just because it's it's a fragile thing, will break down. And you get some pieces that you can't use in your bag toward the bottom. With the briquettes, you can use more of that bag. 100% of the bag is used because the briquettes, you know, are, are formed in a certain way that they hold together and they won't break up in the bag. What I'll say about the, uh, the briquettes, you can uh, manage the temperature a little bit better. So you don't have to worry about all the ups and downs that you would get with lumps. So the briquettes, it's easier in the fire management. So that's the benefit of the briquette. So if somebody's cooking, I don't know, more indirect, let's say they're doing an indirect, anything that's 25 minutes or longer is an indirect cook. Briquettes are the perfect thing for that. You could throw some flavor chips or chunks of wood on top of that to get a more smoky profile, you know, you know, depending on what you want. Um, you know, whether you're cooking beef or chicken or something like that, you can add a degree of smoke chips to it. To, to achieve that smoky taste in your food. So that's that's the benefit of briquettes. And our briquettes stand out a little different because they do they are made just from our oak char. Interesting, because in there you said that your briquettes, you use the wood from making your lump. So what came first for you guys, lump or the briquettes? Lump. Our, our oh. lump came first. That's our oak lump. It's our signature brown bag. That's what we started off with. Okay, and then you came out with it because your owners, I, I'm assuming owners, it's not a franchise ownership, is it? No, nope, it's a family-owned business, second-generation family-owned. Okay, so the management group of your family, they said, look, look at all this waste. Let's learn how to do this. Let's make, lun- or sorry, let's make briquettes. The briquettes, right. And, and well, yeah, that's exactly, they're second-generation gener- Germans, so they are very efficient. They, they don't like waste either. So not only do they take that char left over from our lump, because you can imagine as you process the lump, the smaller pieces, the ones you don't want to put in your grill, fall through our screening process, right? We don't want to put tiny chips of lump in our bag because it's useless. It falls through your grates. It doesn't do anybody any good. So instead of wasting that, we repurpose that and make our briquettes with it. Now I'm going to take it one step further. After we get, make, we get done with our briquettes, we still have a finer char left over, and that's what we make a product we call a char logs. And they're an extruded, which is a different process, an extruded, extruded process that the, B, the, that the uh, PSI on those, I think they said was 35,000 PSI is what they compress that with. It's three times harder than our briquettes because the, 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 the char is smaller, it's finer, so that we can compress it even more. And those things will burn for 48 hours, I've heard. I haven't done it, but somebody had uh, put those in one of their barrel smokers and had that smoking for two days straight with a, with a char log. So that is truly a charcoaler's, like uh, a professional guy's, if you need to cook a lot of stuff for a long period of time, it's a char logs. So that's three, three processes down to get that. And then after that, there's nothing left over. So there's no waste after that. Okay, I have seen them. I know exactly what you're doing or what what they look like. Describe them to somebody that has never seen it and goes, what's a char log? So a char logs are about two inches in diameter, and we break them up in about four to six inches. And, you know, think of a, a solid pipe. 
but then we put a hole in the middle of it. The hole is because it's so solid. It needs that air to go through so that so it can breathe because it's, it's so dense that the air, you know, you need air for fire, right? And uh, our, our char logs take a little longer to get lit about, you know, where we can get our, our um, and that's another thing too. I'm sorry, I'm jumping all over the place. Our lump or most lump will light pretty instantaneously. Within a minute, you get lump lighting. Briquettes take about 10 minutes. Our char logs take about 15 minutes to get lit because they are dense. So it's a, it's, you could think of a, a, a cylinder, a two inch diameter cylinder, about four to six inches long with a hole of about the size of a pencil through the middle of it. And that's the char log. And it's a patented product that we came up with. There's other stuff out there, but ours is, uh, is, is oak char mixed with some hickory char from, again, from our hickory process. We reclaim some of those smaller pieces and grind that up to that finer mist, that char that we need to make our char logs with it. That is so interesting. You guys run or you make your lump, the millings, the fallout, the shavings that come off the wood before it was charred go into charcoal. And then the actual After fine dust from the two of them go through an extruder and make char logs. That's right. So wow. it's a very efficient process and there's not a lot of, because, you know, as a factory, you're always looking for ways to reclaim your waste because uh, at the end of the day, you got to pay somebody to haul that out. So why not produce something with it? Um, I'm going to pivot real quick on and go to the, uh, the pellets. Our pellets, a lot of people don't know, our pellets are follow the same type of process after we make, because we make cooking logs, right? There's splits is what they call them. We, we, after we get done with our logs, we have the end pieces that we make our chunks with. The remains of that is what we make our chips with. So we have the logs, the chunks, and the chips. Then the remains of the chips, we collect all that, and that's what we make our pellets out of. So all our raw material for our pellets are, are from our kilned wood that we made our chunks and our chips from. That gets collected, and, and, and it's a lot fresher wood. And that's, that's another reason why our pellets, when you burn them, they burn hotter and longer with more smoke flavor because they're from reclaimed, but from our own process. So each one of those pieces of wood, and I'm going to take it back one step. We don't own forest. We buy wood. So when we buy wood, let's say we're buying pecan or hickory, we moisture test that wood. We hand select the wood that we buy. If it's too old, we don't take it. If it's too wet, we don't take it. We buy a premium wood, then we kiln dry that. So it starts off as a great wood because as, as a purchaser, you can imagine, if you go to the store, you don't buy the brown bananas, right? You buy the bananas that, you know, we buy them kind of greeny a little bit. You know, they turn yellow. That's what we want. You don't buy the bruised tomatoes. But if you're the farmer and own the farm, like a lot of other manufacturers own their forest, they're using every piece of wood they got, whether it's rotten or not. You know, they hate to throw that stuff away. So they're using questionable stuff. Ours is all premium wood that we start off with, and that's why our through our process, our pellets have a higher BTU rate. They do burn hotter because they're fresher. They're not made with industrial scrap. A lot of pellet people are, um, they buy stuff left over from furniture. They buy stuff left over from, you know, it might be hard wood because they use alder wood and, and bed frames and, and couches, but it could be three or four years old. So that's all dried out. Our stuff is one season. It's seasoned and then kiln dried. So it has more of those cell membranes and lanikins that, that produce that smoke, that produce that flavor that you want when you cook. Where's the home office at? So it is in Wilder, Texas. So mm-hmm. it's about 45 minutes south of San Antonio. That's, that's what I was fixing to ask. Where is there. Wilder? Okay. So it's in the south it's, central. Yeah, right. 
And that's where they've been for since 1961. Family-owned business. And what's happening now is in Texas, we had great representation. Um, outside of Texas, not so much. Like in Texas, you could go to Albertsons or Kroger or Tom Thumb or you know, a variety, like 20 or 30 different places to get it. But outside of Texas, we don't have that much representation. So working with people like Academy and Ace, we're able to get our product into, you know, into areas that we're not traditionally at, but then nobody knows our product. So working with you, talking to you, getting that word out that people are like, well, let me try some of this B&B. Because if they don't know what's different about it, why would they try it? Why would they try something different than what they've already had? So having your audience, if they've got any questions, they can certainly, you know, go to the email or, or, or um, you know, send something to our I'm not the social media person, so I don't want to quote anything, but I think we, we do have Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and all that stuff. And it's generally me or Brittany answering those questions. So be a little patient if there's a lot of questions, but it's, it's a small operation. And, but we, we do appreciate people who are looking for the higher quality stuff because at the end of the day, you're not cooking barbecue just for yourself. You're cooking it for your family and your friends and you want to present the best food possible. You're going to start off with the best proteins. You can use the best rubs and marinades, Fuel is the third ingredient. It's, it is a taste profile that goes onto your food. If you use crappy fuel, you're not going to get any benefit from that, or it actually might have a deterrent to your food. If you use Matslite, for example, you've got to let that burn off because there's a strong flavor that comes off with it when you first light it. You're not going to get that with B&B. And that, that is something you consume. You're going to put that in your, you know, your mouth, your kid's mouth. You don't want something that's questionable in in that because there is there is particulates that come off of the off those fuels. You know whether whether it is a briquette, whether it's a lump, whether it's a pellet, a chip. That stuff. That's what the smoke is, and that's what lands on your food. That's what gives it that taste. So you are consuming it. So you want the best. Having the best fuel again will give you the best food that you could produce. And I hope your your audience tries it. And, and sees the difference. I tell you what, what you said just a second ago is so true, and I love that. Could be a slogan: B and B charcoal, your third ingredient. I like it. <laughs> first, yeah, but the first flavor too, because if you think about it, before you eat it, your olfactory nerves and your nose are picking up that scent, and 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 it's actually queuing up. It's setting the table on your tongue to let you know you're about to get this. So certain taste buds actually activate from your nose so you're tasting it before it even goes to your mouth and that flavor that's effervescing off of that is wood flavor it's a smoke coming off of that food when you go to eat it and and it's it's it's, it's the third ingredient but it's the first flavor for sure there you go so, you just finished your slogan the third ingredient but the first flavor y'all like y'all better we'll, use we'll that, that. we we'll hurt if you don't t-shirts <laughs> that's right we'll, we'll put you on that we call we call 3x barbecue mediums so yeah, that's right. As far as size goes. So when you're doing your pellets, what are some of the things that you look for when you're pellet grilling? I, I really or like smoking. a nice smoke. There's no doubt, but I don't want, I need a good BTU because I do cook my briskets hotter than the normal pellet cooker. I don't get below 260. My pellets go at 260 and then my finishing them is at 280. Okay. I don't cook anything do below do 260. Fire, you, and then that's that's something I've seen a lot of lately is people doing, they call it a fast brisket. I just say I'm hungry. I need that done. Um, I, I, I've, I've become a pellet. And, and on my deck, I've got, you, you need a variety of different cooking appliances. I mean, just like in your kitchen, you've got a microwave, a stove, and you've got different things, cook different things. There's a place for a pellet. And, and if you want something that comes out 
I'd say championship quality, definitely tournament quality. You can get that on a pellet cooker. Uh, you just got to have the right, you know, fuel to go into it. And of course, start off with the nice rubs and marinades on, on your on your brisket or even your chickens. It doesn't matter. You can do some nice stuff on a pellet. But I, what I was getting at is a lot of times people miss that charcoal taste. They don't have that charcoal. You get the apple, the pecan, or, or the hickory. They've got those tastes, but that's a pure taste. But there's a, I guess, a mental mindset. You're looking for that char taste too. We have a Jack Daniels pellet that, that we produce from the charred oak bell barrels of Jack Daniels, and that is our charcoal pellet. And I've been telling people to add a cup of that in to every pound of your charcoal that you that you no, no more pellets that you use to add that charcoal pellet in with it to give you that. It's almost an acidic taste to it, but that's that's a legit area on your tongue is the acid and the bitter part of your tongue to just complement it. But that's that's what cues people in their mind to think, okay, this is something that was cooked outside. Uh, and, and that's, I just wonder if you ever worked with charcoal pellets before. Absolutely. I have. Yes, yes, yes. And I think what you're also referring to there is where the grease comes down and it hits that charcoal and it emits a flavor, a smoke, something that gets into the CO2 from the burning of the charcoal gets into the cooking chamber of the cooker and lands on the meat. There is, and, and, and I've been corrected about this before, but I'm going to stand by my theory on this, but that's called, have you ever heard of uami, the fifth flavor, the fifth taste on your tongue? Yes. I think that's the, that's the basis of the uami, is when that fat from the meat hits that char, it doesn't hit the flame, it hits the outer part of it, right? So it hits the hot part, because your charcoal, the ashy part on the outside is, is the insulator at that point. When that hits that and it cooks, it throws that meaty, savory flavor back into your food. And for 99% of our existence, that's how we ate. We cooked meat over fire, right? Gas and, and, and electric, they're new to us. So that flavoring, that taste that you get, and if it's not uami, it's something. It, it's a genetic response to eating because when you, when you walk into a neighborhood or drive into a neighborhood and somebody's cooking over an open flame, you smell it, and you don't think the place is on fire. You think it's dinner time. I mean, it's a, it's a memory. It's a genetic memory of, of our great, great ancestors going back millions of years of us cooking meat over fire. And that's that taste. That's that smell that you're smelling when it comes back. And if it's not uami, it's something because it's a distinctive taste. And you're right. You don't get that until you start getting those drippings hitting something hot. Yeah, you that so. smell you're speaking of, it smells completely different than a trash barrel burning, a grass fire. Yep. It's totally different. Whatever that smell is, that's the part that people are attracted to. And that, that does help, Like I guess, in the pellet grills, or even with charcoal. We started talking about charcoal. When that lands on that charcoal, that piece of charcoal, that wood, it's burning if it's a briquette or whatever it is. So when that meat and flavor lands on top of it, that's the part that sizzles back into your food. So uh, in, in the gas world, they call those flavorizer bars or flavor plates where the fat hits that metal bar. You know, and, and and steams back into the food again. So it's 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 definitely a flavor that's activated by heat, by fats and juices coming off your food, and I guess that insulator, whatever that piece is, because you need a medium between the flame and the food. If not, you just char it. You don't want to do that. Turn it to the carbon. So you need something to kind of slow that that direct heat down a little bit. So. Listening to you talk, understanding the process of B and B charcoal understanding your company's history, would I be wrong in saying that either 
in the past or what you could call your charcoal is a upper shelf type charcoal. It's, it's, it's a step ahead of the mass produced stuff. Is that right? I, exactly. I'm trying to position our product to be what's called an affinity brand. Um, it's something that people, when they walk by, they say, okay. And then part of that, you're right. So part of that being the affinity brand is the um, consumer's you know, reaction to it. They have to be able to have a positive reaction to everything about the brand. You know, at the end of the day, it's about the charcoal or the lump or whatever is in there. They got to have a good experience with that. But being an affinity brand is something that somebody will pay more for and, and gladly because they get a better result from it. Nobody wants to pay more to get less. You're going to pay a little bit more because there, there is a difference. It, it, exactly. I mean, there's a point. There's a, I'm sure there's a breaking point that you know people don't want to do it anymore. I'm not going to spend. I've, I'm not going to spend a three hundred dollars on a bottle of wine. I just. I, I wouldn't appreciate that distinctive difference. But I could tell a difference between a three dollar bottle and a thirty dollar. I mean, that's and I. I tend to go toward more the you know one I can enjoy versus one that you know tastes a little more mass produced. That's an experiential thing. I've tried different. I've tried the three dollar wines. Uh, you know, there's two buck chucks or whatever they are. They're they're not something I'm gonna you know put in my fridge or um, I don't have a wine cellar but you know my shelf that I put my wine on um, because I, I I didn't have a good experience with them so having that good experience is what I want people to try with the B and B but having that affinity kind of a destination brand I guess is what they want to call it that that the only way that happens is when people want to try it and they have to have a reason to try it. So we have a story that needs to be told and telling you the story. And hopefully some of your listeners would tell the story too, once they've tried it and experienced it. But there's a reason why we're not just saying it's better because we say it's better. It's better because it is different. Most other, most other lump charcoal is a hardwood mix. So you get a mixed bag of hardwoods in there. The reason why is because they own their forest and they're going to put all kinds of hardwoods in there, which there's nothing wrong with that. But you know, let's say you want a hickory smell. You're not getting, you don't know what you're getting with a mixed bag of hardwoods. You get a mixed bag because some of that smoke comes off there is going to affect the food. And if you find your perfect taste profile, like, oh, I love this taste. Next bag you get is going to be different because it's mixed. You don't know. Having a specific species, specific lump charcoal in ours gives your cookers with the people at home that specific taste profile they're looking for so they can really dial it in whether they're feeding their family or for competition they're looking for a certain taste profile that they're you know that's that's what again an aspiration they want this i'm going to give them what they want every time in a consistent manner and 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 hopefully it's worth it to them they'll pay a little more but i'm not talking crazy more i'm talking a few dollars more i mean we're just five or six dollars more expensive than the opening price point but we're fifteen, twenty dollars less than some of the premium brands that are out there. So our position is premium product, but an affordable price. You know, so it's not it's not the mass quality stuff. But we're just definitely not the fifty dollar bag or forty dollar bag people. I mean, you could buy our twenty pound lump charcoal pretty much across the country at A stores fourteen, fifteen bucks versus a competition that's charging forty for the same stuff. All right. With that in mind. We've stated a few of the mass merchandisers that's out there, the Academy, stuff like that. Are you working hard to where these listeners and the store owners that are listening, are you working hard to get into specialty standalone barbecue grilling stores? Is that where you want to go with Absolutely. it? Absolutely. So my formula, the way, and I spent some time with Weber Grills. I worked with Weber about 20 years. So one of the things that I learned from them is that you can be on all four street corners. You can be at an Ace 
You could be at a barbecue special. You could be at a Walmart. And you could be at a Home Depot. You could sell that your product at all four stores. I don't want exclusive anything, but the formula is everybody's got to work together. And, and, and the idea is that I want my product to be available at different places, but I don't want any one person controlling my company or the B&B company I work for because then they can drive the shots. So there's, there's a certain percentage that you can be in all those areas. If I was not in the barbecue specialty stores, where that's where we started, the butcher shops, the local guy, then the larger people would never pay attention to me. You know, your aces, uh, if when I didn't Home Depot or Lowe's or anything like that, but they wouldn't care about you because nobody's asking about it. But on the other side, once you get in those big boxes, they want to, they want the exclusives and you're not going to, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be able to be available at the opening, you know, at the specialty stores, but I'm going to give them something different that I'm going to give Lowe's and, and Home Depot. They're going to get my product, quality product, but I'm going to offer them something that, that I want everybody to, to sell my product and I want everybody to make money selling my product. I need the specialty stores because they take the time to talk about it. They tell the story. Once that gets known, there's only one, you know, if you go to, you know, some areas only have one barbecue specialty store and a lot of people won't travel two hours to go to that store. They want the convenience of going to those bigger box stores, right? So, you know, the idea is having the product availability, but also having that integrity of keeping with the specialty stores too. So offering them things that I don't offer the other, the big box things, that's the formula. That's working at, you know, a tandem where they can get some things, but not everything. But the, the specialty stores can get things that, because they'll spend time with you. If you go in a barbecue specialty store, they don't mind spending 20 minutes talking to you about the latest trends. Big box stores probably won't keep up with that. That person in the garden aisle will be an electric or, or plumbing or cashier in two weeks. They don't have time to tell the story. But I like the convenience of being in these big box stores because, you know, there's 2,000 Home Depots. I can't remember. It's 4,000 Walmarts. It makes sense to be available for people to get. But, you know, I don't want to tell the, the individual, the specialty store, you, I'm not going to sell you either. I want to be able to sell to everybody. And there's a way to do that. That's really a great, great breakdown that I've never heard it put that way. But that is so good right there, bud. Well, and, and that's the way you grow. because And part of that is, is the price integrity, having that aspiration brand where you're not always trying to lower your price. Because when you lower your price, you got to lower your quality. So keeping my price and people paying more, you know, at the cash register, you got to talk about that. Is somebody willing to pay $3 more for my bag? Well, it depends what they get out of it. And if they feel that they got their $3 worth, then they're gonna ha- it's going to happen, that type of thing. But then, like I said, with the specialty stores, we're going to do things with them that the big box stores haven't, we're not going to take a chance on. I do think the big box stores monitor what's going on at that individual level to get to say, okay, this is the next trend. Well, yeah, you can have a piece of it. That's it. You know, because I want to stick with my, again, what brought us to the dance was the specialty stores. That's the one I'm going to leave with at the end of the day. But, you know, you can't, you can't tell Home Depot no when they're going to write a big check too either. But you can't let them control you either. So it's, it, it, it starts with those individual specialty stores because they tell the story. I'm going to protect them for sure. Okay, let's look at how it's packaged. Talk about your packaging, size of bags, um, stuff like that. So we've got... 60, over 60 different items that we have for sale. That breaks down to like, let's say our briquettes. We have three sizes of the briquettes. So we got the 17, the eight, and then a three-pointer. That three-pointer, I'm really working on trying to get an Amazon or barbecue guys so we could put that in a box and ship it. Because sitting, that's one of the problems with mine. A $10 bag of charcoal costs $12 to ship. That's, that's, you can't, I mean, nobody's going to keep doing that. 
So if I get this three-pound bag into a smaller box, I can get it on Amazon. It's it's not going to get you far, but it'll get you one or two cookouts, you know, depending on what you're doing. And, of course, Amazon does a free shipping, so everybody gets it. But, you know, that's just that's a sample thing. So the variety of different things we have, so let's say our oak, for example. Oak, we've got a 20-pound and a 10-pound lump. Uh, we've got the same thing with the hickory. We try to stay in categories. So five in categories, you've got your lump products. You got your briquettes products, and the the charlogs fall under the briquette product. They just right now are in a thirty pound bag, but it's time to bring those down to a fifteen pound bag, so I can get them at grocery stores and that type of stuff. Because a thirty pound bag is pretty hefty, and a lot of people will pass that up. But if it's a fifteen pound bag, you might get more people picking that up. And was that the charlogs uh, you're talking about? Yeah, the charlogs. Okay. So you know we're we just code has got us scrambling uh, right now. We've got. We've increased our production about 40% in the past six months, but the demand has been up 60. So the problem now is just getting product back on shelves. So we don't have time to even see what time of day it is. We're just, we're just getting stuff into trucks and getting it out to people. Uh, and, and there's a bit of panic buying. There's hoarding going on. We, we've noticed that like um, through some of our stores, they tell us what their average transaction is. It used to be 1.9 you know, transactions for each transaction, 1.9 you know, bags of charcoal. Now it's 5.3. So people have tripled their buying. So in other words, if you usually buy one, you're buying three bags. If you usually buy three bags, you're buying nine bags. If you usually buy five bags, you're buying 15 bags now. So keeping that product on the shelves is, is, is uh, kind of chasing the bus right now because people are loving our stuff. People are at home more. I mean, people aren't commuting as much. They have more time to cook outside. Most of the people in the barbecue industry are having a phenomenal year. I know I've got to be sensitive. A lot of people aren't. A lot of restaurants, a lot of you know, uh, you know, entertainment people are having a hard go at it, uh, but the benefit is that people are spending more time at home and they're they're cooking better. So um, our, our sizes, I'm sorry, your 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 question was different sizes of bags. Most of our stuff is you know bulk type of stuff, 20 pounds and 10 pounds that type of stuff. The smaller things like our pellets, 20 pounds and 40 pounds. So they're they're, they're sizable, but that's industry standard, really. I mean, because your what does your hopper hold? About 20 pounds, I'd imagine. That's right. Yeah, so that's you can't go much smaller than that with with that. Those are our sizes, and um, and that, that pretty much takes you know most of our things are available in two or three sizes. Are uh, like our logs or any of our wood products are just one size. Our logs are one bag. You know, it's one point four, one point two cubic feet, depending on if it's an apple wood or an oak wood. Our chunks are the same things, and our chips are the same thing. You got one size on those guys. You know, and that's they do those by cubic feet about how much. You could spread it out on a table, you know, how much yardage that takes up. That's how that does it. But it, it's about, I'd say about a 40-pound bag for the logs and then 10 pounds for the chunks and maybe two pounds for the for the chips, that type of thing. Okay. So we do have a lot available out there. And it, if they go on our site, B&B Charcoal, you'll see all those sizes and all the, you know, different varieties, different flavors and types on for sale there. And, and then from there, if they want to go to Ace, we have about 50 uh, items that are available on the ACE main on their main page. You've got to look at ACE's two different types of organizations. You've got the ACE warehouses that we have about 50 of our products stocked in the 17 different ACE warehouses, but then you have about 4,200 ACE stores, and they are independently owned. So it's up to that individual ACE store to determine what he wants to put on the shelves. If your customers, if your listeners keep going to that ACE manager and say, hey, I need the, I need the post oak splits, I need you know the post oak pellets, Eventually, that A-Store will put it on the shelf so they don't have to keep going to the main webpage and ordering it. But if they do order it on Ace's main webpage, 
it will be delivered to that local A store for free. So free delivery to your local A store, but you got to order it on their main page. But do that enough time, that local, um, you know, the co-op, they call them co-ops, that owner will stock it on their shelves. So you don't have to keep doing that process. Really nice. All right. Here comes a good question that I know, well, I thought about it. What kind of cooker do you have? So, <laughs> that's a loaded question, sir. How many I do you have also? Grills. Okay. <laughs> I collect barbecue grills. I just picked up one today. When I did the Guinness Book of World Records, I had 800 of them, but that was two years ago. So I probably have a thousand by now. So these, these are nothing to do with B&B. This is just what calls an occupational hazard or or marriage therapy type of thing, whatever way you want to look at it. But um, those, most of mine are antiques, and I collect the vintage ones. Um, I love the ones from the 40s and the 50s. I, I enjoy going out there and, and, and cooking on them. It just, I mean, as long as they're not new old stock, if they're older ones, I can cook on them and, and just kind of see what they were doing. I just, I've got a, a, a very cool one I just picked up. I can't wait to play with that one too. Uh, it's a tabletop version from 1948, and it's it's just and I'll be using chips in that one, just small chips and maybe some briquettes. Uh, but my go-to or everyday one, my wife cooks out more than I do. In fact, I just pulled up my driveway and she's cooking now. She's grilling. It's on a gas grill. So we cook out about three days, three to four days a week, and it's probably 75% gas just because it's time to come home and she's already got dinner going. When I cook, it's charcoal. Uh, it's a Weber kettle, just a 22-inch Weber kettle. I can do everything on that. Um, I mean, I have a pellet. I have ceramics. You know, I've got a variety of different things, but just, just the ease of use of a Weber kettle. I know my way around it. I can do direct, indirect. I can smoke on that kettle. I can do a lot of different things. It's, you know, it's just a family of four, so it's plenty of space on there for whatever I need to do on it. I've got to ask this. I'm going to take a step back with you. Do you truly mean a thousand different cookers? Yeah. God. No, I mean, none of these, some of these could be doubles. Like, since I worked for Weber for a while, I probably have 400 Weber grills, but... Like, I have a blue one, and I could have the same model in green and red. And then the red one could be, they used to be the, the Genesis A, B, and C. So I could have a red Genesis A, a red Genesis B, and a red Genesis C. But then I might have uh, a platinum red. You know, so it just it just got crazy. I know. I just could take it out. So, so, yeah, so gas grills, yeah, I still have a lot of gas grills. I, I try to maintain. I love the charcoals. I love the portables. Um, I've got a lot of ceramics, you know, I've got 60 ceramic grills. So, you know, they, they're everything from the, I got a 1978, which was at that time a Pachinko palace, but right where it transitioned to big green egg, but I've got five or six ones that go back to the fifties. I've got one unused one that was shipped over from Japan in 1957 or something that, that, that the pilot never used it. It's still packaged in its own original crating and everything like that. So that's something I won't cook on, but you know, I've got a comparable one that has been cooked on that I would use from the, you know, for the sixties. So, you know, there's categories of them, but I have duplicates of them, if that makes any sense, but they're different. Like I'll have an orange one and a green one and a yellow one, all of the ceramics, right? all the same models, all the Imperial Kamados is what they were called, same size, but different colors. So, so they're different, but they're also the same. Does that make any sense? Absolutely. It does. This could be a podcast in itself. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that is just too cool, man. I love that. We have gotten to a part of the podcast that we do at 
every single one. Here in my warehouse, I have a whole lot of injection needles. I'm going to inject you with a butcher barbecue truth serum and ask you a couple questions and you have to answer honestly. It's like spin the bottle. We'll do spin the needle here. All right. There you go. Okay. Do you believe in aliens? Define alien. I'm not trying to be cagey with you, but define it. Is there okay. life in other planets? Yeah. I, I don't have a problem with that. Intelligent okay. life? I don't know. The purpose of these questions is for the folks to get to, get, to, get to know you. All right. Okay. Do you believe in aliens? You said, yeah. Okay. Ghost. I believe in, yes, I believe in ghosts. I haven't seen Bigfoot. any. But I believe in them. I think it's, yeah, no. How about magic? As Magic is the science of illusion? Sure. People are, people, I mean, there's magicians, you know, pull a rabbit out of my hat. It's, it's an illusion, right? I, I mean, well, growing up, I wanted to be a magician. I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. But I don't believe in sorcery. I mean, yeah, I take it back. There's sorcery. Yeah, yeah. there's 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 uh, supernatural events that can't be explained. All right, cool. All right, you still got a little bit of this truth serum flowing. Truth serum. So here okay. we go. What is your best barbecue purchase you've ever made? Say a utensil, oh. a tool. Oh, I was going to use a grill. <laughs> no, I ain't so. letting you go there. Uh, <laughs> I have my favorites, but it's the barn finds. You know, you find one that you pick up for $25 and it's worth 5000 Yeah, those are my favorites. <laughs> um, but um, let me see. Best barbecue tool. I, I like uh, it, it's, uh, it's, uh, the, the tongs, but I like the tongs, the locking tongs. Uh, and I like the flat tongs. I don't like the ones with the grippies on them because I like to be able to use my tongue as a spatula, but I like them to lock too. So I don't like to always have them, you know, expanded. So, you know what I'm saying? They've got a little gizmo on the yep. back of them that locks them. All right. Let's flip it. What's your worst barbecue tool you ever bought? Oh, my goodness. Worst being, there's some I have bought that I've not used, like the salt blocks. I love the idea of salt blocks. I just hadn't used them yet. Um, so I wouldn't say that's my worst, worst barbecue tool. Good Lord. I'd say the one I hate using are the scrapers. I hate the scrapers. You got to use them, but I mean, it's just, they're just, they, they, they just, they're just, it's one of those necessary evils, you know, you got to keep your grades clean, but you know, I, right. you know just, we'll go with that. That's, that's yeah. Hey Ed, we'll let you get out of here and go eat your supper. Would you tell everybody where they can find you? your website, your Facebook pages, everywhere to follow you and or B&B Charcoal. Okay, so now I'm over 50, pushing 55 right now. So in that margin, so my social media handle things, I know you got to be very specific. So it's bbcharcoal.com. That should get okay. you to our main webpage. Once you get there, they got the little icons that you can flash over to Facebook or Instagram. I just can't remember if it's the ad or the hash or whatever. It's, I always mess that up. So it's, it's, but that's the central, that's the go-to. And then from there you can branch out and satellite out and then follow whatever social media platform that, that, that you, that you like. So bbcharcoal.com is us and have fun there. That's, that's what I say. Take it from there. All right, Ed. I really appreciate you. Thanks for joining in. This will be a fun one to get all edited up and everybody get to listen to. I think the last part was so cool. I guess it's because I knew of charcoal, but so many people will believe that the front side is going to be the best part of it. But we'll listen to see what everybody says. Okay. Well, are you talking about the Bigfoot thing? No, man. Was that the part the collection like? <laughs> part. Gosh, that's oh. amazing. 
Oh, yeah. I, I can convince my wife the same thing. So <laughs> We didn't even get into Like, I just got – are we off air right now? Nope. I'm still taping, big man. Uh, Do we need to get off uh, air so she no, won't I, hear this? No. <laughs> no, I just picked up two books today because I also collect books. I've got – 2,500 titles of books from barbecue, nothing but barbecue related books or, or like this one I just picked up. It's a briquette book. I think it's going to change the way people think of briquettes. It was printed in 1900. Okay. And it's printed in London. And then they were talking about brick and they even spell it the French way, B R I Q U E T T E S and patent fuel. I'm telling you, nobody's read this book yet because this is going to change all the history that people talk about briquettes. This changes it. And I haven't even gotten into it yet. I just picked it up. And another one, this is so exciting too, is a it's a pamphlet from Patio Supply Company, creators of outdoor living from Seattle, Washington, and it's a 1930s uh, Patio Supply Company in Seattle, Washington. And I'm leasing through this thing, and I'm like, look at those grills. I mean, they had they've got brazers, they've got charcoal briquettes. Uh, it's 1930, and this is this is prior to. And, and, and we think all this is new stuff. They got a shish kebab skewer set here. They got the, well, Huntington. I knew about Huntington, but I didn't know about their, their tool handles here, charcoal tongs. And this is something that you would see in today's. And, and this is kind of what I do. I collect these things. Um, I get the model numbers. I get the manufacturer's numbers. And then when I find them out in, uh, you know, estate sales and stuff like that, I know what they are because I've got them, you know, I've got the, um, a catalog. you know, the, the, you know, the the catalog of it, the picture and things, but it also helps me when I see something at an estate sale, know what it is too. So that's why I could, you know, people don't know people don't collect barbecue grills. Very few do. If they do, it's very uh, specific. They collect Weber's, they collect hasty bakes, they collect uh, cooking kettles. Uh, but you know, I, I, some of these I'm excited to get into and I think I've seen them before online and now I know what they are. I'm going to go get them. But this is the type of stuff that's fun that people have been cooking outside for so long. Um, it, it's instinctive. That's how we exist. We are who we are because of cooked meat. Uh, and, and there's a, there's a, um, uh, a doctoral dissertation by, I forgot his, his, the guy's name, but it's called the cooking hypothesis. It was written in like 1978 or something that said that the way that we became modern people was because we cooked meat over fire. That's when we started losing the Cro-Magnum hunch, losing our bigger jaws, being able to stand up straight and actually have a smaller air pipe that we can, you know, reflectively make noises and stuff to communicate. Um, it's, it's why we are who we are is cooking over is cooking out. And that's, that's, it's just an exciting, and I'm always interested in it just getting deeper and deeper because it just brings me right back to where we are to now. It's very, you know, circle type of logic type of thing. I can hear the passion in your grill. voice with this, but this is what's cool. When, I'm going to get my, hopefully in the next couple of days, I got to get my library out because everything's in boxes and I got some stuff I got to cross reference, but you can imagine 2,500 titles. It's hard to find things in boxes, just piles and piles of books. So it's, it's a, it's, it's a cool thing to, to cross reference. And it's, it, what's cool is it's, it's been out there for so long, but people have forgotten about it. Why? I don't know. Because we've always, partly because of what I said earlier, because cooking with charcoal was cooking with coal, and people looked at that as a, you know, that's that's a poor way of doing things. They wanted to go to gas. They wanted to go to electric. So all this history was lost. It was put in boxes, put in, you know, books and forgotten about. But got got this one printed in 1900 right here that, like I said, can't wait to get into it. From wow. London, too. So that's, it's, it's a whole different perspective than the American way of looking at it. They had a different... 
because it was an island, they had to be very economical with, with their wood. They couldn't just, you know, keep burning logs because it was polluting everything. You remember London was real smoggy at the time. So they had to formulate briquettes. Everybody thought it was an American invention. Proves it different right here. (laughs) (laughs) And, yeah, we appreciate you very much. Thank you for everything. And I really, really appreciate the conversation. Oh, yeah. Let's do this again sometime. I'll let you know how uh, this new grill turned out. (laughs) Thank you, sir. Have a good night. You bet. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Smash that subscribe button and be ready for Butcher's next podcast.